0: Welcome to The Light Within, a podcast for anyone seeking to rewrite their life, live in their light, and align with their soul's highest purpose. I'm Leslie Draffin. I'm a certified microdosing practitioner, menstrual cycle coach, and feminine embodiment mentor. And I'm on a mission to break taboos around women's bodies, periods, and psychedelics. On this show, we're exploring all things spirituality, sexuality, mysticism, and empowerment. Come along as I interview other coaches, teachers, healers, and thought leaders about all the ways we can feel more tuned in, turned on, and lit up AF. If you're on a journey towards self-discovery, you've come to the right place. This is The Light Within. Hello, beautiful beings, and thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Light Within. I am so excited to have today's guest on the show, Seriously, like what a get for us and what an amazing person to chat with, especially not only for my life and my experience with psychedelics, but for all of you out there who listen to this podcast because of the pivot we've made in the last 12 months to really focus a lot more on expanded consciousness, growth, transformation beyond just menstrual cycles and spirituality, you're going to be obsessed with our guest today. Her name is Dr. Katherine McLean. She's a neuroscientist with expertise in studying the effects of mindfulness meditation and psychedelics on cognitive performance, emotional well-being, spirituality, and brain function. Now, Dr. McLean was a researcher at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she conducted clinical trials of psilocybin, yes, magic mushrooms, and other psychedelic compounds as well, and her groundbreaking research on psilocybin and personality change actually suggests that psychedelic medicines can enhance openness to new experiences, promote mental health, and emotional well-being. Now, Dr. McLean is also an author. She has a beautiful book that I have just loved reading called Midnight Water, a psychedelic memoir. It is beautiful. It is vulnerable. And in this conversation today, we talk a lot about Her experience as a female researcher at Johns Hopkins, death and loss. We talk about becoming a mother and how psychedelics really have helped her in that realm. And this is just such a grounding and informative conversation with someone who you can tell just is so knowledgeable about this. I was so thrilled to get the chance. To chat with Dr. McLean. And so I know you guys are going to love our conversation. Before we get started, though, I wanted to announce my brand new well, I can't say brand new, my new and improved group coaching program. Mushroom Alchemy is relaunching in September. Now, if you've been listening for the last few months, you know I just ran something called cyclical microdosing. Well, this is cyclical microdosing, new and improved. It is eight weeks long, and it is for anyone who wants to transform their life through connecting with pleasure, healing their womb space, and commuting with psychedelic mushrooms. I am so jazzed about this new iteration and the people that are going to come into this space. It will be a small, intimate group of people for eight weeks together. It's the last time I will offer this this year. So if you want to grow, transform, and uplevel your life before 2024, you're going to want to get more information on Mushroom Alchemy. You can find out details on my Instagram at Leslie Draffen or by sending me an email, hello at LeslieDraffen.com. So much more details will be coming out in the next few weeks. So, with all of that said, now let's get into the juiciness of this conversation. And please join me in welcoming Dr. Katherine McLean to the Light Within podcast. I am so excited to have you here.
1: I'm thrilled. This is actually the very first interview I've done on a podcast for Midnight Water. So ah. we should have like champagne and cake or yes.
0: something. Yes. <laughs> we'll do it. Yeah, we'll just pretend. We'll put it in our mind's eye. So first and foremost, the first question I ask everyone who comes on the show is what ignites
1: your light within? It's such a great question. You know, you sent that a couple of days ago and I've been thinking about it. And every time I came up with an answer, what kept pointing me back to was nature. Mm-hmm. And so all of the other things that I look to are kind of supplements to nature herself. So, Um, last Monday was my birthday and I was doing a ceremony for myself. Like I usually do. And, and then at some point I walked into the woods where I Mm -hmm. live and it was like, Oh, I, and sometimes I feel like we, we have to do these things to remind ourselves to just walk into the woods. Mm -hmm. And I just felt very, I felt very grateful because then there's nature with all the trees and the flowers and the newts and the toads. And, you know, it's like, it's all there. So that's, that's really what ignites my inner light. Mm, I love that. So for folks
0: who don't know you, don't know about your work, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit
1: about the work that you bring into the world. Well, I have followed a circuitous path. Uh, for a long time, I was an academic researcher and scientist. I was very lucky to work with the, um, the Griffiths psilocybin team at Johns Hopkins for about four years uh, before everything kind of you know, exploded into mainstream consciousness. We were just kind of working hard in our relative secrecy. Um, I trained with Mary Casimano and Bill Richards, uh, who are now much more well-known as some of the most experienced guides in the world. Mm -hmm. And we were mostly working with high dose psilocybin, also some other psychedelic compounds like salvia divinorum, which is its own story. (laughs) You know, it's, um, it's its own trickster element. Um, And then, you know, while I was at Hopkins, right after I accepted my faculty position and I had all the funding, the title, everything set to work for another, you know, four or five decades Mm -hmm. in my dream job, um, my younger sister went into the hospital as, you know, with her final stage of breast cancer. Mm. We thought she had been cured. She was almost to the point where they say, that's it. You've made it three years. You're cured. And it happened so fast that it was just a whirlwind and it was everything, but the thing that was surprising to me was it was a wake up call. Mm -hmm. And what I saw being with her pointed me in a totally different direction. I said, oh, I need to learn more about what just happened in this hospital room. Mm -hmm. I need to find out for myself what this is all about before I go back and start giving psilocybin to more people, you know, who are themselves going into that space. I need to understand what that space is all about
0: hmm. And so you morphed out of that field and now are an author and live on an organic farm. I mean, you're living the life. Um, so we're going to talk about kind of both of those aspects of who you have been, who you are. Um, so I'd love to kind of start with your work around that psilocybin study. And so how did you find yourself working in the field of psych- uh, psychedelics?
1: Well, it was, I, again, I kind of took a little bit of a detour to get there. So in college, um, I was self-experimenting with everything I could get my hands on, as many young people do. Yeah. Um, and I was also fascinated with neuroscience. So I was starting to apply to grad schools. And I remember telling my mentor at Dartmouth, I said, you know, I really want to study ayahuasca and mm-hmm. EEG in the jungle. And he was just like, come on, like, what are you talking about? No one does that. And, you know, now the joke is on, you know, all of us because it's happening 20 years Mm -hmm. later. But um, I found a grad school where I could study meditation, mindfulness, which people also forget was also taboo 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. Um, But it was slightly less taboo than psychedelics. So I studied mindfulness meditation and put out a a couple pretty... um, prominent papers you know that captured some mainstream attention in terms of news and media and then when i wrote to roland griffiths to see if i could just meet him after his psilocybin study came out showing basically what they showed at the good friday study that it can produce authentic spiritual experiences indistinguishable from you know mystical experiences reported throughout the ages i said you know i've been wondering about this my whole life like can i just meet you And then I think he did some background checking and he was like, why don't you come for an interview? And so it kind of all came together. And he said the reason he took my email seriously was because of the meditation project, Mm. because he was contacted all the time by people interested in psychedelics Mm -hmm. and rarely people who were interested in the spiritual side of things. And so, you know, it's it's interesting how you think you have this one goal and then this other thing happens and it kind of brings you back around, but in a better way position to actually achieve the thing that you've envisioned. So that definitely happened at Hopkins. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. It's all here for you. Right.
0: And you're on the path that you're meant to be on. I also love, you know, from my own experience coming into this work, I came from the spiritual side and I was started as a meditation teacher and a menstrual cycle coach, and then have morphed into, you know, a psychedelic guide and, and really working a lot with the mushroom. And so to see folks who are also in this academic world and Roland Griffiths specifically to be like, Oh, I'm interested because you're interested in the spiritual side. It just makes me so happy because um, yeah, I can't imagine like 20 years ago how much more taboo this is. Right. I mean it's taboo now, especially where I live. Like and so seeing and hearing your story I just makes me so lit up because it's like it's all happening. Like maybe it's right. happening a little bit more slowly than some of us would like to see, but like we're really on the fucking forefront of this coming to a space where it's just going to help so many more people, I hope.
1: Right. And the inter- I mean the interesting thing about meditation as you know is that if you have that foundation, then the experience and the integration of a psychedelic journey is, you know, it builds on that foundation. And mm-hmm. the only thing, I mean, when people ask me, like, what are you excited about or worried about? The only thing I'm worried about is that people don't have a mindfulness practice. They don't have a foundation. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're if you depressed and you get psilocybin from your doctor, what are you going to do in the months afterward? Like, how are you going to sit with all of the lessons and all of the somatic experiences that have been churned up? Um, Not that it's bad; it just can be like swimming in the deep ocean. And like, if you haven't even like gone swimming in the ocean before, like maybe try first, and then yeah, try it with psychedelics. But yeah,
0: swim where you can touch first before you go into that scary part that like is thousands of feet deep, and you're like, oh my god, what is below me? (laughs) Right. Oh my goodness. Okay, so for those folks who are not really familiar with what the um. Big research project was that you were on. Mm -hmm. Can you just kind of give us a little synopsis about what it is you guys were looking at
1: um, and what your findings were? Sure. So um, the same private foundation that had funded the meditation study that I did in grad school called the Shamatha Project uh, decided to fund a study for um, the Hopkins team that was a combination of high-dose psilocybin and daily meditation. And then Roland also added... um, psychosocial support afterwards. So basically what that means is meeting in groups and talking about your experience, doing integration. You know, the thing that is now so common, you know, integration circles. Yeah. It didn't start at Hopkins, but it was one of the first places that we operationalized what that is, you know, people coming together to integrate. So the study was aiming to find out if having a daily meditation practice before a mystical experience on psilocybin helped you know, enhance or extend the benefits of the mystical experience. Uh, if it, you know, potentially reduce the bad, the bad experiences, the yeah. more challenging experiences. And um, on the flip side, Roland was curious if the mystical experience would inspire people to become rigorous meditators. So um, that old, you know, you see that all the time in the sixties and seventies, like Ram Dass took mm-hmm. all of the LSD he possibly could, but then found meditation and that was his path, you know, his primary path after that. Uh, same with, you know, my, one of my teachers, Joan Halifax, she worked a lot with LSD. And then once she found Zen, she was like, Oh, it's not that different. And it's more accessible to me every day. Yeah. So Roland was curious about that relationship. Um, you know, we were working with healthy people, a lot of young people, um, people who were not psychologically in distress Um, However, you know, a lot of Americans are hiding a lot of old trauma and bad memories and difficult somatic experiences. So it was interesting to kind of, people always ask me, like, were you treating sick people? And it's like, well, yes, we were. I mean, I consider most Americans to be in distress at Mm -hmm. some level. So, you know, but these people weren't, they didn't have a diagnosis They weren't seeking psilocybin to cure something. And I also think that that stands out because now most of the studies are about treatment and cure Mm -hmm. and less about just asking people, what was your experience like? Mm -hmm. So what did we find? We found that, um, uh, as always, psilocybin produced a mystical experience 65 to 70% of the time. Um, You know, it doesn't work 100% of the time. But we weren't uh, filtering people based on spirituality, so you could have atheists in the study who are much less likely to have a spiritual experience. Um, right. uh, let's see, it it produced various benefits in terms of well being, emotion regulation, forgiveness, uh, what are called kind of pro social qualities, so like compassion, um, kind of other directed well being. Um, we looked again at personality. So personality had increased in the first cohort. We saw, we saw increases in open-mindedness, mm. um, which was the first paper that I published when I got to Hopkins. Um, we didn't really see that replicate again, um, although other teams have replicated the result. And we think it's because people were starting out so high in openness that there wasn't that much room to go up. Sure. So you're more likely to see that increase if you start with people closer to the average for whom a psychedelic experience is truly mind-opening. And, you know, some people, I mean, more qualitatively, I would say my impression was that the support afterward helped. Um, But statistically, we didn't find that. We found that if you had a mystical experience on psilocybin, that was, quote, enough. Mm. And that the meditation and the psychosocial support was just kind of like a little extra, but not, not that impressive from my perspective, leading people through those, th- that part of the study, it was definitely helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. And imagine being this participant, you could get zero psilocybin or close to zero, wait a month, you're still meditating, close to zero psilocybin, wait four more months in groups, meditating the whole time, and then finally get your high dose at the end. Yeah. And so for those people, can you imagine just waiting out six months with nothing and then getting a high dose versus that awesome six months of meditation and like talking to other people? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, this is also why I decided I was a bad scientist, you know, because I was more (laughs) interested in the real lived experience than the statistics. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that
0: I, I love that you said that too. Maybe you feel like you're a bad scientist, right? Like a lot of what I've read from folks who are out there microdosing with the mushrooms, and then we'll look at microdosing studies specifically that maybe won't show, you know, what people are experiencing. Um, And I just wonder about, like, all the different things that are happening in a study versus happening in the actual real world. And when I talk to people who, you know, want this proof, I'm like, yes, and (laughs) maybe there's more than just, like, the proof and the numbers, the proof and the data. Like, that's the thing about mystical experiences, right? right sometimes it's just unexplainable but we right. know like right like we know in our body and in our soul but like sometimes it's just hard to like like you're saying like put it down
1: and sometimes our our measures are inadequate you know i've started to see more papers now showing there was one really i mean i thought it was funny but it was like a it was a very prestigious journal that said like no difference between lsd DMT, psilocybin, it was like four different drugs. Mm-hmm. And the no difference was based on a scale that was not that useful. So it's <laughs> like anyone with experience with these four drugs would probably make a pretty good guess about which one they were on. Yeah. And yes, there's some overlap. Maybe we can fool people more of the time than they think. But mm-hmm. the this idea of no difference is, I think... Potentially, we're seeing the pendulum swing back toward such rigorous science that it will obscure a lot of the interesting aspects of psychedelics. But the pendulum was over at the spiritual side for the longest time. So it's like, okay, we're just kind of swinging back and forth between these two aspects of how humans want to categorize these mysterious things. And, you know, again, it's like the, what the, I think it's like the kind of golden years at Hopkins when I, when we just got to experience what it was like to watch people go through these mystical experiences when there was no treatment, no cure, no like end goal. It was mm-hmm. just science for science's sake. Um, and yeah, we were, we were lacking the outcome measures that could quantify a lot of what we were seeing.
0: Mm. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up too. Cause I feel like for a lot of people, And obviously, with the push for legalization or decriminalization, it seems like lawmakers and folks who are in power to make these decisions want these studies to, like, prove. And maybe that's why we're seeing the pendulum swing so far into, like, these treatments and – and I, and I love it in a lot of ways, right? Like Texas, where I live, um, I believe it was two years ago or maybe last year, they put like millions and millions of dollars into like grants that could fund research around psilocybin and treatment resistant depression. And so I was like, hell fucking yes. Thank God. Like we're getting something. Um, but I also love that you also pointed out like how it swings back and forth and how you guys were able to do this beautiful study. Before it really like popped up on the mainstream and and found this this mystical right.
1: yeah way to look at look at science well even the even the cancer study that was happening at Hopkins at the time was not about i mean it was looking at whether psilocybin could um, reduce feelings of anxiety related to a terminal diagnosis, but the mechanism was never anxiolytic it was mm-hmm. how does a spiritual experience reduce anxiety about death. Mm -hmm. Well, it does so through a mechanism whereby you learn that death is not an end. Or if it is an end, it's not an end that obliterates the meaning of your life. So it's like, I think that that kind of finding would still be scary to a lot of the American public and lawmakers and, you know, policymakers. So it's like if psilocybin works to reduce pain and anxiety and depression because it takes you outside of the box that you've been taught. This is reality. This is what's real. This is what, this is how we behave. This is how we work. This is how we live our lives. This is how we die. And psilocybin is like, no, we're going to take a journey outside of that box. Then you can go back into it if you want, or you can expand the box, or you can cut down one wall, or you can go and live in the woods, you know, I mean, those are the questions that fascinate me. And I don't think that's where a lot of lawmakers and pharmaceutical companies want people to go. They just want them to be happy back in the box. Fuck yeah, they do.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, seriously. Um, And so what was it like? So the other question I have, you know, what was it like to be a woman on those teams? Like, I'm I'm sure there are women, obviously, like who have been in this for from since the fifties. Right. And a lot of the time we don't know their fucking names. Um, like, like let's think of the main like protocols that are out there with microdosing specifically and the people who are writing these books. So what was it like for you to be a woman on that team? And, and how have you been able to work with other, you know, amazing women in this field as well? And yeah,
1: well, I mean, it was hard. It was hard to be a woman at Hopkins. Um, I actually just saw Roland Griffiths last fall for the first time in nearly 10 years since I left. And as everyone knows, you know, he's facing his own, you know, event horizon with uh, colon cancer and he's opening up more and more about his own personal psychedelic mm-hmm. experiences. So I'm just like cheering him on. Like, you know, it's like finally he feels the freedom to do that. But he still asks me, you know, like, why did you leave? And I said, Roland, you know, as a young woman at Hopkins, it was really hard and I wasn't taken seriously. I watched people make fun of you. And if they could make fun of you for psilocybin, like I was, you know, I was toast. I wasn't a tenured, you know, professor who'd been doing this for, you know, 30, 40 years. I didn't have the like suit and tie, you know, older white man persona. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's hard for him to believe that that could be true because he loved Hopkins so much and it did so much for him. And I just think that this is how these systems work is that they privilege certain people. And it's very hard for those people to accept that the same system could <laughs> also harm others. So there's a whole middle chapter of my book about um, childbirth and motherhood. And I reference a couple of the women who got pregnant And had children either as postdocs or young faculty at Hopkins. Mm. One of them almost died because she had to go back to work after three days. And she had all of this postpartum bleeding. Oh, God. She went back because she was afraid that if she didn't, she would lose her like teaching job, which was half her salary. Mm -hmm. Now, was that true? Would she have lost her teaching job? Who knows? But I remember when I took my leave after my sister died, my boss, not Roland sat me down and he said, well, technically you're allowed to request this unpaid sabbatical. It's in your contract, but don't expect your job to be waiting for you when you come back. Mm. And I don't think it was personal. You know, right. I think he was just saying, this is like, you're you're swimming with the sharks here. So like, go and do your journey in Nepal, grieve your sister, like understand what happened to you, but this is not the space that's going to be like waiting to welcome you back. Mm. And during that year off is when I met my mushroom teacher, my first mushroom teacher. And he said, uh, it was this. It was such a funny moment. He said, why do you think, or like, have you considered why things didn't work out for you at Hopkins? You know, and I was like going on and on about everything and misogyny and like, you know, these systems of oppression. And he said, no, like, what about you was different? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know what, like, what's your answer to that? And he said, you don't worship the same God as them. Ah. And I was like what god do I worship like suddenly it was like a koan like what god do I worship that they are not worshipping and vice versa what god are they worshipping that I I'm mm-hmm. the like the her- the heretic you know yeah. in enemy territory so that kind of also propelled me on a quest to understand like what these medical institutions are like I mean I could go on and on but the one thing I'll also mention is that at the same time that I was struggling with Hopkins I watched my sister be completely uncared for in a medical institution as a young woman dying of cancer. Mm. Now she was young. She was beautiful. She, you know, maybe people really didn't want to believe she was dying, but the care that she got was abysmal Mm -hmm. at a top class cancer hospital in New York city, you know? And it's (sighs) like, what is, it's like this, the medical institutions are blind to like what's right in front of them. If it doesn't match, you know, what they think they're their job is. And so what I can say about Hopkins, I got to work with Mary Casimano and she made it all worth it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's, I mean, she's like a personal saint to me, like what she's accomplished given that she was working, she didn't have a PhD. She, she wasn't a professor. She wasn't on faculty, you know, it's like the level at which she was in service to this very difficult system is like the work of a saint. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so Um, The impact that she had on so many people and how what she taught me, you know, since I've left, I was like, maybe that's why I was at Hopkins, just to meet her and learn from her. And like, it's the only way the universe could get us together, you know, for that amount of time. So it's worth it, you know, and there were amazing women on the staff as well, again, like, mostly nameless, but Mm -hmm. we did succeed in getting them named as authors on the papers that happened while I was there. So. That was one little form of advocacy, like name these women, include them in this like long list of authors. Mm -hmm. Don't just name the people who were the head researchers. Yeah. And now it's, now it's common practice, you know, it's, it just took that one shift. So again, it's, it's slow, you know, will there ever be, you know, a whole team of female researchers doing psychedelic work at Hopkins? Probably not. It's mostly men still. Yeah. But- Progress is slow, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think it's
0: hard, you know, for folks now in 2023 to even like imagine what it would have been like in the early two thousands and like the 2010s. <laughs> Cause it was like, we're still having so much, so much to go here now, but like I came up in the early two thousands and like the stuff that I remember and the stuff that I would like read in my journals from just like my own. And I wasn't in science. I was in TV, but like shit was weird and really fucked up and like there's just so much right so yeah progress takes a time a little bit but I love what you said about maybe that's the universe they wanted you two to get together and here's how it's gonna happen and
1: yeah yeah I think I mean I learned I can also say that I learned a lot from being in a system that was challenging yeah because before that, at Dartmouth and at UC Davis, and I don't know if it was just because Dartmouth was the way it was, or the mentor that I had, or the system I was in was more equal, you know, the way it, we, they treated women and, yeah. you know, people from different backgrounds. So I think it was good for me to see the other side of it and yeah. understand what it was like to be not in a privileged class or like not have that status. Um, just to, you know, again, it's just like expanding the scope of compassion. Like what is life like for people who are not looked upon just like how they look and how they appear and their pedigree as like a certain, you know, as a certain thing. And I, you know, I'm still, I'm still, I think that's maybe the leading edge of where my spirituality is now. Um, Just like learning more and more about different people and where they come from and not just assuming that something like, meditation and psychedelics is going to cure. Yeah. What, what ails them? (laughs) Absolutely.
0: So let's talk about the shift after you leave Johns Hopkins, you go to Nepal. Um, and you know, your sister had passed away at this point, like how did, and, and you found a mushroom teacher, right? So how did psychedelics help you move through
1: that next part of your life personally? Yeah. Um, You know, I was reflecting on this this morning. So when I was in Nepal was probably the peak of my uh, spiritual euphoria, you know, it was, it's like my grief finally found a release point. Mm -hmm. And I released my sister's ashes at this like 13,000 foot nunnery, Mm -hmm. right below the border of Tibet. And I thought, this is it, I've done it, you know, it's like, I've released her, everything's fine. And then as we were hiking, home toward Kathmandu. There were a lot of storms. We couldn't go over this one pass. We had to backtrack. And when we got to this one point in the river early on in the trip, I remember stopping at that point and feeling like we were entering like a a different space. It turned out that the locals call it a bayul, which is like a heavenly abode on earth. Mm. So it was the first place that I started to see like psychedelic cactus and it just, things started to warp a little bit. So as we're coming back through that place, the woman who was just ahead of me on the trail, like I was taking a picture, a video of the river for her. Cause I was like, oh, she'll really like this. And I went to do this and then I heard a sound and then she was in the water. So I don't even know how she fell in. And yet I have a video of like the moment she did, like the sound of it. So I went running up and she's in the river and I just thought, this is it. She's going to die. And then another part of me is just like, maybe not. So I like went running back up the trail. I screamed for help. And one of the Nepali translators dove in, saved her life, but then he got sucked in. And if my sister's death was like my wake up call, that was like the moment that was like, you can't just go back. Yeah. Like you are now in it. You are now in the whirlpool and like, you can fight it. You can try to get out, but better to get all the way sucked in and come out the other side and understand fully what this like death rebirth thing is about. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like my second coming back from that was harder in a lot of ways than when my sister died, because I had never witnessed like a tragic accident like that. I'd never witnessed something that seemed totally pointless, meaningless, just why did this have to happen? So that whole winter when I got back from Nepal, I was struggling with that. And then the mushrooms kind of gave me, I talk about it like a cosmic map. It showed me this like space in which there are people on earth, but then there are also the ancestors and like things way beyond that that we can't imagine. So the mushrooms kind of showed me visually this space that contained everything. And they didn't say like, we're going to fix this. They're just like, don't worry. Like it's all here. You haven't lost anything. You're not like, um, you know, you're not wandering without navigation. You have a map. You have this way to navigate this. However, like you're going to have to navigate these old memories, this like old stuff that you don't understand in order to achieve that level of happiness that you tasted in Nepal. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, after that, mushrooms became like a religious, I don't even know how to like, almost like themselves being like a religious guide or like a spiritual guide. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel like they were trying to point me in a certain direction. They were just like, okay, like we'll show, we'll like illuminate this part of the journey. And then you'll like see the lay of the land and then make, like, Choose what's the next step. Mm-hmm. Um, the second time that year that I took the mushrooms, like within a month or two weeks, I was pregnant with my daughter. Ah. So it was interesting that it's like I didn't see motherhood on my path when I left Hopkins. I didn't think about it that much when I was at Hopkins. I saw these other women struggling. yeah. But as soon as I let go a little bit and the mushrooms are like, okay, like we'll help you see like the the terrain. Then suddenly, like, my daughter's spirit came in. Um, And, yeah, it's like that choose-your-own-adventure. I'm like, I wonder what would have happened if I wasn't a mom and instead I stayed in Nepal.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But certainly once my children came into my life, um, psychedelics have become, I would say, necessary. Not very often, and I certainly don't do five grams anymore. (laughs) You know, it's Mm -hmm. just I don't have the luxury to do that. But the relationships with those medicines have become necessary to navigate the challenges of motherhood. And it's not something I, I'm not recommending it to other moms. I'm not, you know, I'm not even saying it's totally safe. I think it, you know, it has its own risks, but to me, having that spirituality and knowing that I can access it and go there to answer questions when I'm feeling just like nothing else is working. Yeah. Um, I don't know how people are moms without, you know, something like this. It baffles me because it's so hard.
0: Yeah. As someone who isn't a mom, um, I can't imagine. Yeah, I really can't. Like the friends that I know who are mothers of young children, the struggles that they've had postpartum, um, the people that I've worked with who are moms who have also struggled it's like exactly right what you're saying having something like this can be such a tool if you so choose um because you have to make that decision for yourself um and so moving now into the space of author and and mother and and all of the things like what is your practice like with psychedelics? You said you're not taking five grams anymore, but are you, you uh, working with the mushrooms? And is, is also, I guess, is psilocybin and mushrooms like your main teacher, or are there other forms of entheogens or psychedelics that you also
1: enjoy and, and enjoy working with? Yeah, it's so funny because as soon as I try to think about like one being my favorite, I immediately think of like three others. It's like I really feel like this is the lifetime where I get to experience all of these different. Teachers, oh, love it, and I'm like, I'm just thrilled about. I'm the only one that I had an experience with that I didn't like was ayahuasca, mm-hmm. but it was a long time ago, and it was when I was at the depths of despair, and Sorry. I just feel like the teaching that I got was it was true, but it was like harsh, mm-hmm. and I just didn't appreciate how harsh it was. It was like okay, like, I get it, but do you have to make me feel that bad about it? Like, come on, I'm just getting my feet under me, you know? So I would like to reacquaint myself with ayahuasca, but I think it might be one of those kind of medicines that's like, when I'm, when I'm myself, like a grandmother, I can be like, okay, can we have, can we try again? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, um, no mushrooms, I think are, um, mushrooms have been like the gateway for me. So for a while they, they were the, the, the whole, The whole enchilada you know it's like and at some point my mushroom teacher said you know in the bible they talk about jesus being like a gateway but you're not but he said my understanding is that you're not supposed to just keep worshiping jesus on the cross you're supposed to walk through the gate that he opened to understand that more mystical teaching that he was offering that's Mm -hmm. like way beyond this sacrifice on earth and so at some point, my mushroom teacher said, it's like, you have to stop worshiping the experience you had with mushrooms as like the final thing. Like they were just trying to show you something so that you could walk through that door yourself and discover what was coming next. Mm-hmm. And so at some point when it I was really at the bottom, postpartum depression, I had been fired from this MAPS trial Um which is a whole other story. It's one of my favorite parts of the book, but anyway, people will get to experience that. um, My father-in-law had just died. My dad had brain cancer and I was like, come on, this is just, so I took some mushrooms and I had no nothing. Like it was just like a bad dream, like confusion. I felt like I was just like going down weird paths and like, it was just, there was no clarity. And then I tried again the next month and the mushrooms were, they said to me, just be a mom. Hmm. And I said, well, I don't know how it's hard. Like, I don't like, that's why I'm coming to you. And they were like, we've already given you everything you asked for. Hmm. I was like floored. Right. Cause it's just like the, I, I think at that point I realized that they had agency and it wasn't just like go and beg for what you want. Hmm. You know, they were like, you asked for something really big which you got and now you have to live that answer. Yeah. But thank thankfully after I got that, you know, no <laughs> from the mushrooms, MDMA stepped back into my life. Hmm. And it was something that I had experimented with a long time ago in college and I had written it off like I had believed a lot of the propaganda about right. like neurotoxicity and everything. Um and you know, thank God I kind of shifted my perspective. Yeah. And so in that way, I think that sometimes these medicines work together. They'll like kind of hand off, you know, like like a race, (laughs) like, all right, here's the torch. We're going to hand Catherine to you because she keeps asking for the same thing, but like she's not looking over here. So if I had to choose, if I were on my deathbed, I would choose MDMA. Okay. A hundred times. And not that it's the easiest and not that I, it has the most, um, like I think mushrooms have a lot more uh staying power. Like they'll like teach you things over a long period of time, whereas sure. MDMA is just short periods of clarity and a reset. Sure. And so I think in different ways they're my favorites. And then my third favorite, but I I don't I do this like once like every ten years is five M E O. Okay. And I know that people are very into that now. Right. Um, I don't like to talk about it too much, but I would say that that's the medicine that I think is perfect for death practice. Mm-hmm. And if people are very serious about understanding death, that that's the medicine that they have to grapple with. Mm. <laughs> wow. All
0: right. Well, let's talk about the book. So <laughs> I'm sure all of this, and a ton of this is coming up in the book. Give us just a little bit of a synopsis of you know what the book is about, why you wrote it.
1: Um, well, the book is, it, the, it's kind of, it's book ended by these two deaths in my life. So beginning with my sister's death and ending with my dad's death. Mm -hmm. And the way I kind of frame it is that for the first half of the book, you kind of think that the person, the main character, me is grappling with losing their most important person, you know, like, how do you do that? And then you kind of realize halfway through the book that that lesson of how to, live without your most important person is the teaching that is allowing, you know, the main character to grapple with losing the most difficult person in her life. And like Mm. that, the psychedelic, I'm hoping that what comes through is that the psychedelic message is that um, there's, there's on the one hand, love and like um, everything that can be very positive about a spiritual experience and connection But then there's also the part that a lot of us don't want to do this like shadow work of looking inside ourselves at all of these difficult memories and emotions, seeing how we've judged someone else, really looking at hatred and saying like, how, you know, how can you transmute hatred into something like understanding, Mm -hmm. forgiveness? And so the second half of the book is my favorite and i hope that people get the message that this isn't just about like for you know for, it was me and my dad mm-hmm. but those characters could be anyone and so i'm hoping that people shift from that perspective of like oh this is just a book about grief to to realizing that grief can teach you how to care for people who you've decided at some other point are un- unlovable or like you hate them or you're yeah. never gonna you know, understand that person. Um, and so, yeah, at some point I just realized like, if it's possible for me to love and forgive my dad, anyone can do it. I promise. Like, and that's like the most beautiful thing that psychedelics taught me. Hmm. Um, the book is also about what happens when an atheist scientist has a mystical experience and decides to pursue that. And, I don't know it's probably been written before but I don't I can't think of a single book where the young female heroine is an atheist scientist and then is confronted with spirituality and it's like I have to figure this out. Yeah. Um so it kind of it kind of reads like a like a novel, like fiction. Um and that's I kind of like that about it that um I wrote it to get it out of me sure. into the world. And now it's like it to just be me again and live my life. Mm-hmm. And the the Catherine who journeyed through that 10 years is now, you know, a character in a story that people can learn from, but I don't have to, you know, it's like, she can do her own thing. Like I'm just going to live my life over here.
0: <laughs> I love it. My teacher says everything that's happened in the last 10 years is what's putting you now in this place. Like all of the last 10 years and all the lessons and the things that you've gone through are helping you be who you are now. And, um, I see myself sometimes as like a reluctant healer, but looking at the last 10 years, I'm like, Oh shit. No, I've been through a lot of things that can be transmuted to help other people as well. And so I love that you were like this 10 year period. And it reminded me of what my teachers have said before, because the things that we've been through, no matter how challenging, like you said, like, if you can learn to forgive your dad, we can learn anything. And yes, yes. psychedelics are here to help us. Um, something that I heard from the mushrooms in my last full dose experience with them in May was that, you know, we place so much emphasis on these ceremonies on these experiences, but the experience and the ceremony is life. Every little thing that you're meant to experience in life is that's the truth. That's the message. That's the juice. Um, And so maybe we don't need some folks to have a bunch of psychedelic experiences or any, if we instead, like you have experienced with meditation or, you know, having a mystical spiritual experience or, you know, whatever it is can see that like life is here for us. It's not happening to us if we choose to see it that way.
1: Yeah. No. And I, I mean, interestingly, both my sister and my dad were not, my dad had experimented a lot, I think with LSD in his early years, but then he became a corporate lawyer. And so for the end of his life, when I was asking him if he'd be open mushrooms or MDMA or something. He just, he said, my life um, couldn't stand up to the scrutiny. And I just found that to be very sad that it's like he had concluded at an early age that psychedelics were scrutinizing him Mm -hmm. rather than seeing that he felt scrutinized, that he was judging himself, that Mm -hmm. he had parts of himself that he couldn't bring to light, love, release. And So I think that the book also explores those ideas of like, what happens if someone in your life could benefit from psychedelics, but they choose not to? And then how do you, as the person who's willing to take that journey, you know, how do you relate to them? And so I kind of joke with people now, if there's someone in your life that intractably is just difficult, you can't forgive them, whatever, you take the MDMA and magically that person will be cured, you know? And it's like this interesting thing about relationships that we think that the person who's the most sick needs the medicine. Right. And yet here we are willing to take the medicine. So it's like, maybe the people who are willing should be the ones to take it and then apply what they've learned. I can't explain scientifically how that will help people, but I've seen it happen. and I don't know how. Um, Same with my sister, you know, she was young She had breast cancer. She was, you know, her daughter was four years old. She's like, I couldn't give a shit about a psychedelic experience right now. Yeah. like You have no clue what space I'm in. This is not a, this is not a joke. This is not a game. She's like, I either want to survive this or die without pain. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in between. Yeah. And to have compassion for that rather than to assume that she needed some experience. Yep. And between those two, it's like, what better psychedelic training could I have gotten than to be with two people I love who are dying, being very clear about what they don't want yeah, and having to set aside my own ideas. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So the book is coming out. The, this is airing. I know we're doing this interview in June, but this is going to air in August. So the book is out. <laughs> <laughs> at this point in the future. And so I'm sure folks can pick it up at any place that books are available. Um, how else can people connect with you and what other type of work are you doing or are offering? I know you do some
1: some guide uh guidance work, correct? I, I have in the past. Um honestly the book has taken over my life over the sure. last, you know, three years. So um I think the last ceremonial work I did was right before COVID. It was Mm. in one of my favorite places on earth. And we did a mix of meditation and San Pedro, Okay, uh, which is another, I love the cactus medicines. I don't talk again, I don't talk about them that much in the book because, um, I often don't have access and I, I'm still kind of sitting back and watching the conversation around peyote and San Pedro and just kind of like being respectful of, of being a white person. And maybe that's not, the primary medicine for me, even though I've benefited a lot from it. So that was the last one that I did that was intentional, kind of helping other people. Um, The mushroom work that I did in Jamaica with the women was also really powerful back in 2018, but um, I was pregnant. And again, the mushrooms kind of taught me like, you can't just assume that you can take care of 20 women while pregnant, all on high doses of mushrooms. Like, what are you thinking? So the message that I've gotten so far is like to to communicate about my experience, keep writing, mm-hmm. just education and advocacy. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um I'm trying to do a lot more in-person reading and speaking mm-hmm. events. Um and so, you know, I'm open to traveling. You know, it's a little bit hard with two little kids, but mm-hmm. I'm hoping to get out to California and the West Coast in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be at Mycelium Mysteries at the end of September, which is an all-women's mushroom gathering, which is really cool. It's a three-, four-day workshop conference gathering. Um, we're hoping to do a New York event in October. Uh, my friends at Psychedelic Sangha do these uh, events called Bardo Baths, hmm. which is supposed to be like an immersive audiovisual meditation uh, they call them dose friendly events, so they don't provide anything. But you, all states of mind are accepted at the door. <laughs> nice. Um, and so we're hoping to do some kind of cool collaboration around the book and helping people enter the space of Midnight Water. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm open to what you know life has in store. I I'll be in London. Well, let's see. You can edit this part, but I was just in London. But it's like I have no idea what that was like. <laughs> Um, yeah what else can I say oh the um the audiobook is actually coming out in September which is super exciting and um again not something that I thought too much about but then a couple things kind of lined up and um found this great woman in Vermont to do the recording and we recorded it all really quickly and and now I realize like the power of a young woman's voice mm-hmm. telling the story and all the people who don't have time to read but can listen to the audiobook while they're around the house or driving here and there. Yeah. Um, so who knows what's gonna happen when Midnight Water, the sound of it, yeah, you know, reaches the world in September.
0: I love that. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share or talk about that we didn't touch on?
1: Oh, there was one thing that you asked me, and I kind of skipped the first part of the question, which was how do I use mushrooms now? Yeah. Okay, so I'll answer that. Um, So, the funny thing about mushrooms is that I started off with um, very high doses, and they showed me so much that I was not seeing clearly. And now, and then time went by, and then, you know, as I mentioned, they kind of stopped working or kind of pointed me in a different direction. And then I finished writing Midnight Water and a friend gifted me what was supposed to be a microdose. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know about me and mushrooms. They kind of, you know, they kind of gave me the cold shoulder. I don't know if I, you know, I don't know what our relationship is now, but I remember taking that microdose and no one else felt anything. And I had this like beautiful mini experience. Love it. And I went swimming in the ocean and I was like snorkeling and I was, it was, perfect and I felt like in my body and I was like oh is this like the olive branch or the mushrooms like hey can we be friends again like so sorry about you know what happened in 2018 like I I know it didn't make sense at the time but like it was really necessary so like can we just hang out again but like it doesn't have to be the five grams um so then my friend and I came up with a joke it's like called just a pinch and that like whereas the first big part of my life is about these major experiences and these high doses. Like this next part is about like just enough. Yeah. And that the mushrooms are willing to meet me there, which is amazing. It's like, I don't I, I don't need to hardly take anything. And the it's manageable. It's not out of body. It's not too intense, but it's also not sub perceptual. Right. So again, I'm like the magic of this medicine is continually revealing itself. Like, look, we can be anything. You know, it's really about your intention and that you're clear. And when you say, I can't take two weeks to integrate this. Sure. I have five hours. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, can, what can we do in five hours? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's the space I'm exploring more. And um, very happily, it also cured me of my headaches. I had headaches for a long time. And I had exhausted every over-the-counter pain medication. Mm. Nothing was really working. And then after that gift of a microdose, I found that my headaches were getting less and less. Mm -hmm. And then so I started setting the intention. I'm like, wait, this is the protocol for headaches. Yeah. And so again, I just feel a little bit silly. Like the mushrooms were like, thanks for inviting us back into your life. And now we'll help you with your headaches too, by the way. I love it. So yeah, that's where we're at now. And I feel, I just continue to feel grateful for them as teachers and Not that interested in doing a my my friend invited me to do a 15 gram dose and I'm like, I'm good. (laughs) Holy cow. Yeah. I'm good. (laughs) Wow.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was enlightening. This was so fucking fun. And yeah, I'm gonna point people towards the book, um, your website. You can find all of that in the show notes below. Thank you again so much for coming on and chatting with us. Yeah, it was so fun. Seriously, was that not the coolest fucking conversation you've ever heard? Dr. McLean is a wealth of knowledge. I am so excited for the path that she is on in this life, and I am so blessed to have had the chance to speak with her one-on-one. Like I said, I'll put all of the links in the show notes below. Grab her book. It is fucking beautiful. It really, really is. Connect with me on Instagram at Leslie or at The Light Within Podcast. Shoot me an email, hello at LeslieDraffin.com. I would love to hear from you. Have yourself a beautiful week. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. And remember, there's no light without darkness, but there's no darkness without light. I'll see you next time, babe.